0: me myself and disaster the show all about disasters with a human focus from hurricanes to humanitarian issues we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness response and recovery over to you
1: josh and andrew hello and welcome back to me myself and disaster the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus Have you ever visited a location impacted by a disaster? Maybe you've been to the World Trade Center in New York City, Port Arthur in Tasmania, Chernobyl in Ukraine, or even Fukushima in Japan. Dark tourism can mean many different things to many different people, but by its very definition, it is people traveling to sites of tragedy or where death has occurred. In the aftermath of a disaster, many things must be considered and they become a very complex environment. From the memorialization to how we look after victims. But one thing we don't quite often talk about in this sector is disaster tourism. Today, we're unpacking dark tourism with one of the world's leading experts on the topic. Andrew, who's joining us on the show today?
0: Josh, today on the show, we're joined by Dr Philip Stone, Executive Director of the Institute for Dark Tourism Research at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. Philip Philip has a PhD in Fanatology, Society's Reactions to and Perceptions of Mortality. He's written several books and published extensively about dark tourism and speaks regularly at conferences on the topic, in addition to teaching undergraduate and postgraduate courses in tourism, sociology and management at the university. We'll be asking Philip why people are motivated to visit sites impacted by disasters, the impact of dark tourism on communities and what the future might hold. Will disaster tourism be a growing issue for emergency managers Let's unpack this complex and often polarising topic to learn more about dark tourism with
1: Dr Philip Stone here on Me, Myself and Disaster.
0: Phil, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's uh, great being here. So before we get stuck into the interview today, can you take us through what dark tourism is? Uh, It's quite an interesting topic, so we're really keen to understand that. And also how you became involved in this research. Well, dark tourism
2: really exists in the minds of academics like me because it's a term that we've created to label places of death and and disaster that attracts tourists. Um, So it's really much an academic term, a label, that we can classify very much the the, the goings-ons and the consequences of places that people visit after a disaster or after a particular uh, significant death. Um, So really dark tourism is a lens upon society in which we look upon our significant um, dead, really. So that's dark tourism in its broadest sense um, as, as a kind of a label. And what kind of transpired for me to have a look at it as, a, as an academic term? I qualified as a chef about 30 years ago, believe it or not. And I went into restaurant management then the hotel management and then into management consultancy. And then when I was about 30, I came into academia and I met a student who was studying dark tourism. Now, I had a, a management background. I had no idea what it was. And at that time, there was a book just come out by John Lennon and Malcolm Foley, two professors up at Glasgow um, University. And, you know, they, they kind of invented the term and, and, and this classification. And it was a student whose dissertation I had to supervise and I had absolutely no idea what the term meant. And I went and read the book. And I thought, oh, well, that's fascinating. Um, and then, very quickly, I was a chapter. I was a chapter ahead of this student, um, and then I started my own PhD. And uh, then, that was back in two thousand and four. And the rest is kind of history, really.
1: I, I always find it fascinating how people kind of fall into the world of disasters. It's never, you know, someone who kind of goes, Oh, you know, from, from uh, preschool age, I'm going to go and work in disasters. It's, it's, it's some, it's, it's quite often this, this, you know, just serendipity, how people kind of follow this pathway and end up into this industry. I mean, Andrew and I are, I, uh, are examples of that. I mean, we, we're both engineers by trade, but, uh, but found ourselves in the disaster space. And I think, um, I think partially, Andrew and I could probably maybe label ourselves dark tourists. We've been um, around the world with this podcast, and I've obviously visited some sites. Um, only last year, we were actually in a very famous uh, dark tur- tourism site, uh, Fukushima, uh, in Japan, and, and having a look around there, and and the, and and you know what happened after that disaster. But Phil, from your research, what what is the motivation for people to go and see? these sites, you know, in the research and, and what you see, what are those key motivators, motivators or triggers uh, that drive people to go and visit these these places?
2: I, I think firstly, we, we have the term dark tourism. Tourism is simply about the movement of people. That's kind of where I come from. It's this mobility kind of idea and a lens upon which we can look at society through this movement of people. And death is just one kind of trigger or disaster is one trigger for the, for the mass movement of people. And what I'm interested in, um, is the consequences, perhaps not so much the motivations. The motivations to me are quite obvious. Um, this, through well, yeah. the researchers, there's no, there's no such thing as a dark tourist. I kind of declared a long time ago. Um, there's only people like you and I who are interested in our own life worlds. So to, 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 mm. to term somebody a dark tourist, um, suggests there's a deviance or something immoral about them. Yeah. I've not I've not found that generally. That we can talk about mm. consumer behavior later. but generally, there's no such thing as a dark tourist as opposed to dark tourism. Um, so the idea that um, the the people are kind of motivated by death is it's kind of a fallacy, really, but what they're looking for is is, is the extraordinary against the ordinary. and Fukushima mm. was extraordinary. Um, and it yeah. can happen in lots of parts of the world, and I think that's what's drawing us to us to these particular sites is things that can happen to us, um, yeah. and we kind of me- mediate our sense of mortality at these places. Um, that that could be us, you know, in, in places like Ground Zero or, you know, um, yeah. or the Killing Fields of Cambodia or Fukushima. Yeah. So, is, is there one single
1: motivation? I think there's a fascination with the extraordinary is it is it in a sense is it a, is it a recent phenomenon or or is this something that has always happened in human history that's, I guess that's another um thing that Andrew and I've spoken about before is you know is this something that is you know being um more prevalent with the rise of social media and content and being able to show stories is that is that driving the phenomena or is it something that you know we've seen in all human history
2: The phenomena is is, is ancient, I mean, but it was never called dark tourism, of course. Um, So there's Mm. kind of the label aspect for the last 20, 25 years. It's been called something. And if you call something and you classify it, it kind of takes on a a life of its own. And certainly from an academic point of view, you know, it's a multidisciplinary process to, to look at, you know, through the arts, through humanities, through sociology, through business. So we can look at the whole thing of dark tourism. But if you go back in history... You know, you can argue that the the gladiatorial games of ancient Rome was a kind of the one of the early dark tourism sites, right up to the morgue mm. tours of 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 Victorian England or Paris, um, where people used to pay and, and and visit morgues as a kind of a, a leisure yeah. activity. So it's not uh, the the idea of social media again. We can come to that later about integrated travel. It is driving. Some of the, the 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 issues, but it's not the, the not the, the reason for dark tourism.
0: Like when Josh and I were in Japan, one of the things we learned about was how when those disasters happened, earthquakes has been one recently. There's a real sort of outpouring of support from the community, and listeners of this show will know I've got this fascination with spontaneous volunteers—those people who rock up, not affiliated to an emergency service, but they come in and help out um, during a disaster. A lot of that. Um, I think there's a motivation there for people to rush in, not so much to help and, and get that feeling of goodwill, but it's really about an interest in seeing what the disaster is and what happens, um, rather than so much contributing to actually doing something useful. Has your research looked much into that in terms of people following that sort of um, line and trajectory of turning up to a disaster to help out under the guise of actually they just want to see the disaster and and really just take a look and be a disaster tourist?
2: They are kind of. There's a sway of the research on volunteering tourism where they become more of a hindrance rather than a help. Um, mm-hmm. That that's not that's not disguising you know genuine uh, motivations to, to help, um, but sometimes they do get in the way of the the official response. But quite often it's it's the first responders are the volunteers at, at disaster sites, of course, um, and 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 the local community, but. Those people who come to have a look, um, and there are many of them, and people like you and I, it's a bit like a road crash. You know, we slow down to see what's happened. Mm. Um, you know that rubbernecking has always been there because we, again we want to see uh, the extraordinary against the ordinary. So when a, you know a car crashes on the on the highway, sort of thing, it shouldn't do. We should drive in a straight line and get to our destination. And when we don't. You know that could be us in that car. We, we're looking at ourselves in darkness, essentially. Um, the dead are gazing mm. back at us because the dead are us. That that could be us in in these sort of tragic circumstances.
0: what's oh, that's chilling.
1: <laughs> I, I, I think I, I I kind of had I, I kind of have a first hand experience with that. Um, uh, the family and I just recently were uh, over in Argentina. And uh, we went and visited Recoleta Cemetery, which is a really famous uh, cemetery uh, over in South America. And, and you're right; like that, just walking around and seeing all of the mausoleums and the coffins, and and you know, you really start to ask yourself some of those questions. And um, you know, it was it was interesting with the kids. We had to field lots of uh, interesting questions with the kids. But uh, but you're right. I, I kind of can get that sense of. Uh, really forces you to put yourself in that seat and think about things that you might you know not think from a day-to-day perspective and and challenge yourself with some thoughts. um
2: so I was just going to interrupt you there because that raises really two important points about uh, the politics of remembrance, the idea when you're wandering around these cemeteries, certainly in South America, you know there's a lot of pe- politics associated with memorials mm. again, that's 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 a key issue. and then children and dark tourism. Um, I've just been working with colleagues mm. at the University of Pittsburgh and how they view uh, death is, is, is completely different because they wander the landscapes of death with us as adults and that, that's a really fascinating um, subject in itself.
1: Yeah, I, it was it, – uh, the way that children, I guess, conceptualise and think about things is so different to adults and that's something that was really brought to the forefront for me is that, um, you know, some things that I would have never thought about uh, or, you know uh, – with their world v- view imposed over uh, over the situation, it was really interesting. It was actually fascinating watching the kids and their little minds tick over. And uh, as I said, we had lots of conversation for days on end after that about death and uh, and lots of curly ones. But uh, but it was definitely interesting. And, but I think with dark tourism it's I get this really this this strong sense that it's very polarizing. it's either you know people have a negative connotation or they have a positive connotation of it and and people quite often um, kind of sit on the fence you know some people sit there and say that you know um, you know dark tourism is in a sense a way to enable and and profiteer from death um, but as we're just saying there you know we know that dark tourism also has its positives. What are the positives that come out of dark tourism for, for us as communities and individuals?
2: I think the, the idea of it being polarising is down to the kind of the labelling because we've got mm. a, the, the sense that it has been labelled very much by academics first and then certainly picked up by the media. And, I, you know, when I first did my media interview 20 years ago, I thought that would be it. But every, you know, I I think on average I've done a media interview every month for the last twenty years, and it hasn't died off. It's it's getting more. So there's a snowball effect, and that does polarize people um, to to sit on the fence of what dark tourism is and what dark tourists are. Um, And I Mm. think there's there's a distinction. I think kind of the benefits that dark tourism does bring is allows that the disaster to have longevity in the minds of of those uh those communities because once the media's moved on for example it might be a you know a particular murder or a particular atrocity once that the media circus has moved on to the other disasters that are you know littering our landscapes um it's forgotten and the communities are, are left to themselves so tourism allows in a, in a kind of positive way and we've got to get the balance right of interpretation here but from a positive point of view, it allows the disaster to live on and the dead to have a voice um, mm. in in terms of of the future. Because without that mobility of people coming to visit the memorial, the small museum, the you know the, the little marker in the landscape, those dead don't have a voice anymore and they are forgotten.
0: That's a really interesting point. And I think as Josh mentioned earlier about the South American cemeteries, which I saw as well and, and very interesting. And there's a different perception or a different attitude towards death in, in some countries, obviously. But do you think, have you seen any cultural differences in terms of the way dark tourism or disaster tourism is perceived um, in, in various countries? Is there a change between, say, South America and North America or Australia and the UK or or Western and, and other countries in terms of the way we see disaster tourism or our, our attitudes towards it?
2: I think one of the key things, yeah, you, you raise some really important cross-cultural Um, issues there because dark tourism as a subject has really been studied from an Anglophile point of view for the last 15 years but for the last five years it's been a kind of a global um, kind of scrutiny of it a lot of Chinese academics now are looking at it Um, I'm doing a conference in India later on this year Um, and yeah there's kind of a real focus a global focus on, on on dark tourism as an activity but what it does raise up is how we approach death and dying And I often Mm. say to students, death is universal, but dying's not. Dying's a social process. You know, the the end result is death, but the dying process is is completely different for many cultures. So quite often we're we're divorced, certainly in the West, um, and in terms of being divorced from the social reality of death, you know, death is hidden behind professional and medical facades, while in other parts of the world it's very much part of their culture. So when we're kind of, um, exposed to this collective death that really hurts our, our, um, our, our collective imaginations, then we have, we're exposed to something that we're not normally exposed to, and that is mortality. So we mediate our sense of mortality at these sort of places and, and put ourselves in these, at these, um, these disaster sites. But certainly from, you know, I've been a Cambodian, done a lot of research in Cambodia and Rwanda, And they have different cultural approaches to death where death is very much seen as a a release, you know, going into the afterworld and and according to, you know, various religious or um, Buddhist, um, you know, doctrine. So when we have dark tourism, sometimes there's a real juxtaposition between their religious beliefs as opposed to our secular principles. And death is, is really much... Um, the focus of dark tourism, but it has to be treated in different ways. Um, certainly, by by various cultures, at least.
1: Is this fascinating? I think what we're touching on here, as well, and, and I think you mentioned it just before, as well, is this notion of um, memorialization as well around dark tourism as 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 a as a way of being able to memorialise, um, you know, what's happened, and as you're saying, providing an environment for people to consider their mortality. Um, I know we saw that in in Japan uh, when we were up north and looking at the aftermath of the tsunami, you know, a lot of the ruins are left there. And we said, oh, what, you know, from Australia, we go, well, we'd bulldoze those, we get rid of them, we'd build new apartments. And they said, but why would you do that? How are the generations that come after us going to know that it flooded here and that they shouldn't build here? And they use those sites and those those tourism um, uh, uh, sites to, in, in a sense, memorialise and, and be like a marker and, and a lesson almost for future generations about risk. Is that something that you've seen in other dark tourism sites and, and other places around the world?
2: Absolutely. The idea of ruination and the, the, um, the ruins are, are a fascinating subject now and right because ruins kind of generate a, a rupture in our lives because, the, the, again, it's the extraordinary, the ordinary. When we, when we see this rupture, um, and we've got examples in, in um, France, for example, where the, I think this is the, the little the village, solo Glen, where the Nazis came in and, and, you know, obliterated the village. Rather than rebuilding that village, that village is left as a ruin, and it still is today. Mm. Um, and there's other, you know, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of off the top of my head here, Coventry Cathedral in um in, in the UK or Liverpool, there's a bombed-out church in Liverpool. Again, results of war, World War II, left as ruins. And these ruins in the landscape are reminders of our kind of tragic cultural trauma, essentially. But the, the ironic thing is, those ruins, very much like Auschwitz, is you know, would been left as a ruin, and the the, the blue of the gas chambers in 1945, um, is left as a ruin. Those ruins need maintenance. Because without mm. maintenance, the two, the art, the, the become too abstract. Um, so that the, the bombed out church and the Coventry ruins and the ruins in Japan will all need maintaining to keep their ruination, as it were. Um, so there it raises a profound influence. Uh, uh, sorry, a, a, an oxymoron really of, um, preserving the past, um, in this mm. uh, this ruined form.
0: It's really made me think this conversation because um, both our day jobs are in disaster management. And um, I've been to, in the last few years, many communities affected by floods and bushfires in the early days after attack like the impact has actually happened. And and I'm pretty desensitized, unfortunately, all that sort of stuff now and go like another, another house is destroyed, whatever. Um, but a lot of people who I take through those areas are like, Oh my God, that's so like the house is flooded. There's a flood there. Wow. That's terrible. And I think because after the disaster, we managed to clean it up um, pretty quickly and get it back to normal. And the other thing we see is we go to these people um, who've been impacted by a disaster and the first thing they say is, oh, I can't believe it happened to me. It's just like I was not expecting this at all. It's because we kind of clean it up and get rid of the any sort of sign or symbol or memorial of the disaster originally. There might be a statue somewhere, but apart from that, the actual sort of disaster is gone. Whereas you go to Japan and the disaster is there clear to this day, however many years later, 12 years later, um, it's still there and that's maybe something that um is is something we can take away from this conversation is that maybe there's there's an element of this disaster tourism that really is good for future risk and understanding what your local risk is in areas that are affected by disasters
2: i think any disaster memorialization has got to have a warning from history i think without it Mm. you know it's yes there's there's a fine line between commemoration and commercialization and we've got to attract the footfall that's where tourism comes into it But if it's done right, and it does give warnings from history of it could be a man-made disaster or a natural disaster, but most disasters are preventable, of course. Um, You know, we're going to climate change. I'm just working with colleagues at the university in in Finland, um, up in Lapland, and um, they're looking at the the Arctic, the the kind of the climate change in the Arctic, and suggesting in the future that the Arctic could be a dark tourism site because we're going to lose that landscape so people are coming yep. up now to see the Arctic as it is because because it's not going to be there. I mean that's a kind of a, you know a very futuristic um, um, uh, perspective on things, but yeah they've, they've got to have warnings from history. We can we could talk all a day about that because the warnings are often not heeded at mm. all.
0: Josh and I are heading to uh, New Orleans later this year and seeing the the remnants of Hurricane Katrina and actually do a tour. There's bus tours around New Orleans. You can jump on. and They'll take you around and see houses that are still boarded up and destroyed many years after Hurricane Katrina. So, um, yes, yeah, so the dark tourism or you know, the dark tourists in, in each of us are looking forward to that, but uh, I think that's a invaluable thing to sort of see and then get a sense of how big that disaster was. Um, anyway, I want to talk about the uh, dark tourism spectrum that you've put together. Can you take us through that and at a higher level what it means and how it can be applied to different dark tourist locations? The dark tourism spectrum
2: was... Um was an academic model really a a typology a classification um whatever you want to call it of trying to classify various types of sites across the world that had one common denominator and that was death um at its core the the product of death or or dying um so when again going back to this lady who i was supervising a dissertation there was no classification for that and she was asking for where's where's the typology so I essentially wrote it. Um, it was one of the first papers I wrote, and I thought about how to classify them on a darkest to lightest scale because if we look at the Holocaust, for example, and memorialization of the Holocaust, as opposed to some distant or some... Um, Um, manufactured site that celebrates death. And I was thinking of the the dungeons. We have um, the London dungeon, and they're in Shanghai now. and um, I'm not sure if they're in Australia at the moment. But um, places that are kind of scare attractions, um, for example, again, they have a common denominator. So the spectrum was this idea of looking at places of death which are more authentic as the places associated with death which are less authentic. So there's a kind of a sliding scale and then with those various parameters on those darkest, lightest scales of the politics, you know, there was a high polit- uh, political infrastructure around there. It was kind of darker, something called chronological distance. So the further back in history it became, the lighter it became because it was safely secured in the past, as it were. Um. So, yeah, there was a kind of a... Um, of a scale, a spectrum, which, you know, the word spectrum comes from spectrum, which means ghost. And I didn't realise that at the time when I, when I <laughs> called it. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it's very aptly named in that sense. So it's really about classifying different dark tourism sites according to the, the geography, the politics, the, the history um, of that particular dark tourism site. What it didn't do, um, of course, is um, try to measure the experience. And that's, that's, that's mm-hmm. really important. So it's very much from a, a supply point of view.
1: So is there some examples, Phil, from, from your perspective that um, places that have done this really well, you know, being able to walk that really fine line of um, being sensitive but being educational, allowing people to really immerse themselves in the experience but also do that in a respectful way. In terms of your research, and, and I mean, you're one of the experts in this space travelling all around the world observing this, where would you say has has been able to walk that tightrope and do it really well? The
2: reason I'm struggling because I can't think of a place that's done it really, really well. Has got it right. <laughs> I don't think there's anywhere. Yeah. I think I can okay. be critical. I can be critical of everywhere, really, um, and hypercritical of most places. Um, and I will just give you a couple of examples. Uh, done a lot of research over the years at Ground Zero from 2002 right up to 2011 when the the memorial was being um, was being planned. And there was a lot of politics involved in that memorialization, you know, as you can imagine, between real estate mm. people and, and victims, families, and all sorts of different people. Um, and they obviously decided on this, this, this absence, the pool of absence, as they called it. And one of the things is that that is a very contested space. And heritage is very contested right across the world. There's different versions of, of history, which then becomes our heritage. So it's it those mm-hmm. with the political power. And one of the things that's missing, certainly in the narratives in, uh, for, for the tourists at, at Ground Zero, um, is why 9-11 actually happened. It, what happened and what happened afterwards is very well recorded and the tragedy mm. and the atrocities of the day are well recorded. But what led up to 9-11 and what are the ramifications today, that's largely missing. It's 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 there if you look for it, but you've got to really really look for it. And for the the yeah. ordinary person on the street who may not have a great sense of history or a great sense of politics or a great sense of education, will will miss that. So I yeah. think the the, the 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 narrative really um, has, has got to be really much a truthful as possible. Um, and even if it's difficult for the people who are putting the narrative together and for Americans, certainly, you know, 9-11 is a very, very difficult time because they're, yeah. they're you know, it was wounded as a, as a, as a nation. Um, but there's reasons for 9-11. We can, well, I'm not going to get into those, but, um, and there's certainly ramifications of that. So the memorial itself highlights the day itself. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the focus. And, yeah. and, and and rightly so, but there's, there's, there's questions of why, and quite often the why is missing in a lot of doctors and narratives
1: and sites. I think that's a really fascinating point, and that's something that I haven't actually really thought much about. And and that that notion of heritage, you know, there's always two sides to a story, and obviously in a lot of these atrocities, you know, whichever side of the the, the story you sit on, you'll have your set of perception, and you'll have your 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 um your take on history and what happened in terms of your culture and your heritage. You were just saying then it's about, you know, reflecting on the why, what are some of those, some other things that people should be thinking about if they're trying to tell that story in a sense and, and, and honour that heritage in a really kind of respectful way.
2: I think was, with heritage as well comes a cultural approach to, to how we, we, we package up the past. Um, and I'll take you to Rwanda, uh, you know, in terms of the genocide there in the in 1994, again, I was working with a PhD student a few years ago, and one of the things that we found out is the memorialization there is, is very much cultured, but it's too cultured because it's for the Western gaze um, the tourist gaze it's too shocking. It's too mm. too powerful. So where they've left the skulls and the bones and the you know, the, the, the body part and the, the skeletons left in lime as it were in the churches as memorials in the same way they do in the stupas of Cambodia after Pol Pot, and the skulls, you know, the the, the actual body parts become the memorial themselves, that's often really shocking for the Western gaze because we are divorced from the realities of death. Um, Mm. But to Rwandans or to Cambodians, that that may not be the case. Um, So there's a kind of a cultural approach to to heritage as well that we've got to really take into t- into account and be very very sensitive because it's quite easy for us to go in as heritage experts into Rwanda and say this is how you memorialize your disaster um, mm. and not listen to local voices of course um, so there's you know heritage is very much is a very political process um and there's you know there's plural heritage there's, as, as it were there's there's different versions of heritage and it's about political power, which one has the, has the most voice.
1: And I think and, – and, and is there a sense that it can happen on the micro and macro level as well? And I'll explain what I mean by that. I, I know um, as many people probably listening to that, Australia has been through – uh, it's a fair share of, of catastrophic bushfires. And um, over the years of recovery, Andrew and I have observed a lot of, you know, communities, um, you know, struggling again with how do they memorialise it? How do they honour those that may have lost their life? You know, how do they, in a sense, are uh, able to remember that in a way that is respectful? Um, and I say, when I say micro, I mean, because when we think about culture and heritage, we think about countries, we think about, you know, my culture, like Rwanda versus Cambodia, um, it's very easy to understand that. But what about it, like the micro level? If you're just talking about a community of people, uh, mm. do you see differences there? I do.
2: I mean, I will take it back. Um, I, I'll, I'll return to the bushfires in a moment because that's something in uh, England that we've we've had recent um, recent experience of, and it's, it's it's frightening to the to the extreme. And our response to that was was somewhat somewhat um, very much the same. But just take oh. it back to that idea of. Um, Communities voices. The Holocaust, for example, was a Jewish tragedy. There's no doubt about that. But if you go to Auschwitz-Birkenau, you know it's very much recorded as a Jewish tragedy, and and rightly so. But the the, the Holocaust was against other minorities as well. And here I bring up the the Roma Gypsies, and the Roma Gypsies were persecuted very much like the the Jews were um, in terms of that genocidal. Uh, intent and you go to the former Czech um, Czechoslovakia Czech Republic at a place called Leti Um, there was a concentration camp very much in the same vein as as the rest of the concentration camps that was particularly housed for um, uh, Roma gypsies but they what they didn't do was commemorate it in the same way as the Jewish lobby did you know in the Holocaust and you know Mm. from And that voice was largely forgotten. It was through local activism, local communities. And what they built on in Letty at the time um, was a pig farm, an abattoir of all things. And the whole thing was forgotten. And it was local activism, local communities, local academics coming along and saying, listen, this was a place of of, of atrocity over the Holocaust, Mm. but of Roma gypsies who have less political voice now, yeah. what tourism has done is is allowed a very small memorial. The pig farm is eventually gone; only the last couple of years, um, and that voice is coming through. Um, so that's that's kind of a local, a local community aspect to it. But, yeah, yeah. How how you define heritage um, is 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 really really important because what happened is these disasters happen again and again and again, and that. That kind of frequency, certainly in bushfires, you know, sadly with the the landscapes changing and the climate's changing, what did people become sensitised to, always oh, another bushfire is another disaster. Um, so the, uh, perhaps only the biggest disasters or the the the, the mass deaths get recorded, but every mm. death is is a disaster. Um, yep. and certainly when England when the bushfires, um, just you know from not from, from where I was a couple of years ago we looked at it with, with awe because we're, we're not used to it at all. Um, thankfully, nobody died, but it's definitely a scar on the landscape and it's still there. Um, so how you memorialise something which happens again and again and again um, is, is really, really difficult.
1: Can dark tourism – I think you just pick, uh, picked up a really interesting point because we've been talking a lot about you know human human loss of life and that being a marker of, of, of dark tourism – But in a sense, can dark tourism uh, even uh, relate to – because, you know, one thing, again, we saw in the bushfires here was the deep grieving for for the loss of our natural environment – um, you know, the, the deep grieving for the loss of of, of our wildlife. Um, and that really affected some people on a, on a really deep level. Um, is that also something that's, It's something to, to look at? It's not just about human loss of life, but it could also be, you know, when there's a mass loss of environmental, um, you know, nature or wildlife, that, that, that can often drive a dark tourism site as well?
2: Absolutely, because there's a core niche market of tourism and wellness and tourism and spirituality. We go to to seek out wilderness for for that spiritual experience. I'm not talking about a religious experience, but a spiritual experience with wildlife. It might be kayaking in the Canadian rapids or, you know, going into the bush and and, and, and looking at the landscape and feeling that sense of isolation. And when that's gone, of course, and the, I was mm. referring to the Arctic and, and climate change in the book I've, we've just written on, The Future of Dark Tourism, landscape and the loss of landscape, um, really has an impact because it's something we seems out of our control. We can control, well, have a sense of control at least, of the disasters that are man-made because there are warnings from history that we'll not repeat them. Of course, they are repeated, of course, time and time again. But with climate change um, being seen up close and personal with with uh, the weather, whether you believe the science or not, something is certainly happening and with a frequency that we're we are losing that that connection to landscape
0: um and i, I can really you know understand why people grieve um for for that you may really think is, again about um some of the disaster morals that i've been to um a really sort of a one-off experience we walk in um you see people taking photos for their instagram um, they exit the gift shop get a little keyring or something and then that experience is over for them one thing, I went to a, um, I was in Hong Kong a few years ago, went to a, a sort of tourism activity where you basically put on a blindfold, walk into a room um, and you are basically sort of shown around, after to sort of find things as though you're a blind person, you have completely no vision at all. And that's something that really stuck with me is an experience where you really stepped into the person's sort of mind, it was all run by people uh, who had low vision and really, I have I've, I've sort of thought then when I cross the road now about how people who are vision impaired sort of get around the world, I'm wondering what you've seen in terms of technology and, and sort of new innovations in the disaster tourism space or dark tourism space. Is there anything that you've seen like that? I mean, is augmented reality becoming a thing where you get a more immersive involvement in, in the dark tourism site and sort of take more away from it? I think you've
2: raised two important points there. Well, I've just finished a, a book chapter on the senses and dark, and and tourism generally of how we use the senses. Um, we looked at astro tourism, the idea of looking up with, with the stars and existentialism, and finding out nothing to do with dark tourism. But I think that's a fascinating example what you've just raised of using the senses to become embodied, and and having that immersive experience. And moving on to the kind of the technological um, aspects, the latest book I'm on, or just finished, is on the future of dark tourism. So that looked at very much the technological change as well as cultural changes in the future, uh, this futurology approach. And I think what technology will do will bring death very much closer to us. We'll touch the Grim Reaper, but the Grim Reaper won't touch us in the Mm. sense that we'll become immersive in the experience, and I'll just give you a hypothetical situation here where the the Holocaust at um, Auschwitz-Birkenau is very much stopped in 1945. It's been arrested in time, essentially. Um, And I think what will happen is they're trying to interpret that through stories and narratives and all sorts of different things. But what technology might do in the future is allow us that immersive experience where we'll walk with the Holocaust dead and we'll walk with them, in terms of their own experience. Because technology will allow that. Um, I don't know how, and I don't know you know when that's going to happen. But there's certainly mm. technology you know, available today. Now that what that will do is just create that extra sense of embodiment, effect and emotion. Um, you know where we where we we almost experience the actual death itself. And I think if if that's not a warning from history, nothing will. Yeah. will work. Oh, scary.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and and to be honest with you, I mean, we talk a lot about it in the disaster space, especially preparedness spaces that, you know, when we're getting people to learn lessons and we want behavior change, you you quite often often have to stimulate that experience for someone to to kind of get that. So I can see how powerful that might be in the future of dark tourism. And and we are rapidly running out of time, but I could sit here all day having this conversation because it is it is a fascinating one to have. But just want to kind of wrap up this conversation with with one kind of last question for you Phil and that's you know we were just touching on technology and we're just touching on future but what does the future of dark tourism look like what are the key things in the future that we will need to grapple with as communities as as government as practitioners uh, operating in this space what are those kind of key themes that you see on the horizon for dark tourism moving
2: forward I think there's three key themes. If if I'm honest, um, and I'm just kind of recite what the conclusion of my book was in terms of <laughs> what those three key, th- uh, key themes were. I think certainly the technology is one theme is how we immerse ourselves in the experience, um, and and how that happens through augmented reality, or where you know um, machine learning, or you know robotics is is going to be very fascinating to watch. If, and I think so dark tourism and in interpretation is going to be a, one of the key things through technology. I think the second theme is the visitor experience and the visit experience is going to change because the warnings are going to become more stark through the technology, through the kind of the narratives that can be built up. Um, and again, that's, that's, that's really going to be um, a, a difference. And I think the third aspect is how we look at this cross culturally now across the world. It's a global phenomenon. And we call that thanatology, the idea of study of death and dying. And I think what dark tourism does is shine a light on how we do approach our significant dead. And the cultural approaches to death and dying are merging. You know, as as the world merges together in terms of culture and and, and borders are becoming, are broken down culturally at least, how we approach our significant dead um, is Mm -hmm. gonna be really, really interesting. Um, from, from cultural and communities perspectives.
0: Yeah, certainly is. Before, um, before Josh and I went to Japan uh, last year, we sat down for some Netflix and chill. I might as well say let's I well say Netflix, Netflix time, and uh, we <laughs> we were watching that Dark Tourism show. That's that show really so fascinating, but also so controversial, which I think kind of speaks to the controversial nature of this Dark Tourism in general. Like, you're sort of seeing things that are quite shocking. I mean, that show did hype it up a little bit in terms of going to Japan and the guy kind of going off and go, oh no, we're going to get radiation poisoning. Um. But I think even regardless, it's such that I guess the the popularity of that show and and the actor who who rate who makes it, um, I guess, kind of is a lens or, or a a signal of how the interest in this in this space isn't going away anytime soon.
2: A couple of years before that show went out, I was approached by the the producer um, in New Zealand. I think he's based in New Zealand, um, yeah. and he was asking for advice on on kind of what the dark tourists should be. Um, and I, 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 I gave him some advice at the time. It was quite a few years ago. And then, obviously, Netflix produced it. And what happened, of course, was this very voyeuristic approach to dark tourism. Um, mm-hmm. And he became the dark tourist. Um, and in a sense, when we're going back to the beginning here, there's no such thing as a dark tourist. There's only people interested yeah. in the in the social reality. And he obviously sold it in the way he, he did to, to generate... Um, uh, viewers and that, uh, that's absolutely fine but do most dark tourists uh, sorry I'm, I'm using the term there but most tourists visiting dark tourism sites act like that most of them that i see in yeah. observations will treat places with respect yeah
0: yeah and definitely a takeaway from this for this conversation is i think there's no shame in being a tourist or a dark tourist location there's certainly a lot to learn from that obviously if it's done sensitively then it's fine um, but yeah, lots to think about. And, and Phil, thanks for your information, so your experience and, and your thoughts on dark tourism. is so fascinating. And thanks for sharing it with us. You can learn more about Phil's research on the Institute for Dark Tourism website. We'll place a link to that in the episode description and on our website at meandmyselfdisaster.com. Dr. Philip Stone, thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's all we have time
1: for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then.
0: Thanks for listening to Me, Myself, and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com.